Section 12 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Mysteries of London, Volume 4 by George W. M. Reynolds. Mr. Hatfield. In the meantime, Sir John LaSalle had repaired to the library in the Earl of Ellingham's mansion and there he found, as he had anticipated, his friend Mr. Hatfield, late Tom Rain. This individual was now in his fiftieth year, and he was much changed by time as well as by art. He still possessed the fine teeth which caused the beholder to forget the somewhat coarse thickness of the lips. But the laugh that came from those lips, when he was in a happy mood, was more subdued and quiet than when the reader first made his acquaintance many years previously to the present date. Though never inclined to corpulency, he had nevertheless become thinner. Yet his form was still upright, muscular, and well-knit. In his calm moments, especially when he was alone, a slight shade of melancholy appeared upon his countenance, and he even sighed at times as he thought upon the past. These were the changes which the lapse of years had effected in regard to him, and the appliances of art rendered it still more difficult to recognize in the Mr. Hatfield of 1846, the rollicking Tom Rain of 1827. For his hair and whiskers were dyed a very dark hue, and his attire was a plain suit of black. Was he happy? Yes, to a certain extent, in spite of the shade of melancholy and the occasional sighs. His was a disposition originally so gay and joyous that it could not be completely subdued, only mellowed down. Years of rigorous integrity, boundless charity, never-failing philanthropy, and innumerable good deeds had established in his mind a confidence that the errors of his early life were fully expiated, and so complacently could he look upon the present that he no longer reproached himself for the past. This was the usual tenor of his mind, but, as we have already hinted, there were now and then moody intervals in which thought became painful. These were, however, of no frequent occurrence, and thus, on the whole, we may assert that Mr. Hatfield was happy. The conduct of Lady Georgiana towards him, from the moment of their union, had been of an affectionate and touching nature. She studied to enact the part of the tender wife, the sincere friend, and the amiable woman, and she succeeded fully. Espousing him at first solely on account of their child, she soon began to like her husband, next to admire him, eventually to love him. She found him to be possessed of numerous good qualities, noble and generous feelings, and sentiments far more refined than she could possibly have anticipated. The terms on which he lived with her, therefore, aided in ensuring his happiness, and the fine principles as well as handsome appearance of their son were a source of profound delight to them both. Mr. de Medina had died possessed of great wealth, one half of which was bequeathed to Mr. Hatfield. This amount, joined to Lady Hatfield's fortune, rendered them very wealthy, and their riches were almost doubled by the demise of Sir Ralph Walsingham, Georgiana's uncle, who left them all his fine estates. Thus their income might be calculated at thirty thousand a year, and no inconsiderable portion of the splendid revenue was devoted to humane and charitable purposes. When Sir John LaSalle entered the library, as above stated, 
Mr. Hatfield hastened to welcome him with all the affectionate assiduity of a son receiving a visit from a kind and venerable parent, and the worthy physician evidently experienced a greater elasticity of feeling towards Mr. Hatfield than to any other friend whom he possessed on earth. The one could never forget that he owed his life to the science of the doctor. The other looked on Hatfield as a person whom he had actually restored to the world, and as a living proof of the triumph which had crowned long years of research in respect to a particular study. "'My dear friend,' said Sir John Lassell, when they were both seated, "'I have just witnessed a spectacle that I must candidly admit to have been very gratifying. The English are a most generous-hearted people, and are quick also in the appreciation of sterling merit. The Earl's name was just now coupled with the shouts of applause that welcomed the Prince of Montoni. "'I'm rejoiced to hear these tidings,' observed Mr. Hatfield. "'Indeed, it struck me, as the sounds of the myriad voices reached my ears in the seclusion of this room, remote though it be from the apartment whence you have just come. It struck me, I say, that I heard my brother's name mentioned.' For nineteen years has Arthur now struggled in the interests of the middle and industrious classes. Session after session has he passed in review the miseries and the wrongs endured by the sons and daughters of toil. And what has he experienced from the several administrations which have succeeded each other during that period? Though Whigs and Tories have held the reins of power in their turns, the treatment received by my brother has been uniformly the same. The most strenuous opposition to all his grand proposals has been offered, and when some trifling point has been conceded, t'was as if a boon were conferred instead of an act of justice done. But although Arthur has thus failed in inducing the government to adopt large and comprehensive measures for the relief, benefit, and elevation of the industrious classes, he has at least succeeded in giving such an impetus to liberal sentiments out of doors, beyond the walls of the Senate House that he has taught millions to think, who never thought before, upon their political condition. Though baffled in the legislative assembly, though thwarted by the old school of aristocracy, and the supporters of those vile abuses which are summed up in the phrase, the landed interest, though opposed with unmitigated hostility by the worshippers of the wisdom of our ancestors, nevertheless, Arthur has returned undaunted to the charge. Never disheartened, never cast down, always courageous in the people's cause, he has fearlessly exposed the rottenness of our antiquated institutions, and mercilessly torn away the veil from our worn-out systems. The millions recognize and appreciate his conscientious, his unwearied strivings in their behalf, and they adore him as their champion. Unassuming, honest, and free from all selfishness as he is, it must nevertheless have been a proud moment for my brother when he heard his name associated ere now with that of the illustrious prince who achieved the liberation of Castelcicala beneath the walls of Montoni. The gratitude of the industrious classes is the most welcome reward that a well-intentioned and true patriot can possibly experience, observed Sir John Lassell. The Earl certainly seemed pleased with the high but merited compliment thus paid to him, although not for one minute did he seek it when he appeared at the balcony for I noticed that he rather endeavored to conceal himself behind the window-curtain. But speaking of the prince, he is a very handsome young man. The Castelcicalans absolutely worship him, said Mr. Hatfield, and they look upon him as in every way fitted to succeed the Grand Duke Alberto, whenever death shall snatch away that great and enlightened sovereign from the throne. 
It was in the Castelcicalan capital that poor Jacob Smith breathed his last, was it not? inquired the physician. Yes, in the suburbs of Montoni, answered Mr. Hatfield. As you are well aware, the poor youth never recovered the shock which he sustained on learning that he owed his being to that dreadful man, Benjamin Bones, and the horrible way in which that remorseless wretch died augmented the weight of the fearful blow caused by that discovery. Jacob scarcely ever rallied, scarcely ever held up his head afterwards. The only gleam of happiness which he knew was afforded by the good tidings that we received relative to the Bunces, and even that was insufficient to sustain his drooping spirit. He languished away. For six years he pined in sorrow, accessible to no consolation that traveling, change of scenery, or our attentions could impart. It was several years before the great revolution which, conducted by Richard Markham, gave freedom to Castelcicala and raised up that hero to a princely rank. It was some years before this glorious era that Jacob Smith, for he always retained that name, breathed his last. We buried him in a picturesque cemetery on the banks of the River Ferretti, and a cross, according to the custom of that Catholic country, was placed to mark his last home. "'Poor fellow!' exclaimed the doctor. "'He was always sickly, and the discovery of his hideous parentage was too much for so weak a constitution. "'And now let us turn to another subject. "'Have you received the letters which you expected concerning the various individuals?' "'I know to whom you allude,' interrupted Mr. Hatfield. "'And I have now before me,' he added, glancing at several letters, "'the correspondence relating to those persons. "'Timothy Splint still remains the occupants of a fine farm "'in the backwoods of the United States.' and the last nineteen years of his existence have proved the sincere penitence which he feels for the crimes of his earlier days. He possesses a competency, if not positive wealth. By his marriage with the daughter of a neighboring settler, he has a numerous family, and he brings up his children in the ways of morality and virtue. Indeed, I am well aware that he has lived to bless the period when he went through the ordeal of the subterranean dungeon. You prophesied that he would, exclaimed Sir John LaSalle. Yes, those were the very words which you used when speaking of him to me nineteen years ago. I recollect them perfectly, for age has not impaired my memory, thank heaven. I now come to Joshua Pedler, resumed Mr. Hatfield. You will remember, my dear doctor, that this man and his wife Matilda were appointed to the charge of the Eddystone Lighthouse. There they remained for six or seven years, as indeed I wrote to you to this effect a long time ago. Yes, and then you sent them out as emigrants to Canada, interrupted Sir John LaSalle, and they continued to do well. What say your last accounts concerning them? They are still happy, contented, and prosperous, answered Mr. Hatfield. Their shop at Quebec thrives admirably, and they have managed to put by several hundred pounds. Pedler says that the sweetest bread he has ever eaten in his life has been that which he has earned by his honest toils. I have reason to feel convinced, moreover, that he is kind and good towards his wife, and that his only regret is their not having any children. And the Bunces are still living in St. Petersport, after having acquired a competency in the island of Sark? inquired the physician. Yes, they are still in the capital of Guernsey, was the response. Bunce tells me in his letter that his wife's health does not improve. In fact, she doubtless received a cruel shock when she heard of the death of Jacob Smith, for it had been her hope 
that he might some day take up his abode with her and her husband, a hope which she however nourished in secret. Bunce himself has never learnt the real parentage of Jacob, I believe, said the physician. Indeed, I remember you told me the other day that his wife, always bearing in mind the injunctions you conveyed to her through Mrs. Harding, had retained as a profound secret her former illicit connection with Benjamin Bones. Yes, it was useless to make a revelation which would only have troubled their domestic peace, said Mr. Hatfield. Harding divined the hope that the woman had formed relative to Jacob, and in his letters he communicated his ideas to me. But even if death had spared Jacob, he would not have quitted me. No, not though it were to dwell with his own mother. And Jeffreys, asked the physician, what of him? He is well pleased that he removed last summer from Hackney to Liverpool. The money he had saved during a period of eighteen years at his shop in the London suburb enabled him to take a very handsome establishment in the great commercial town in the north, and he is carrying on a large and flourishing business. Thus, in every instance, save that of old death, have you succeeded in reclaiming those wicked people whose reform you took in hand, said Sir John Lassell. Tidmarsh died tranquilly in his bed in the island of Alderney, and the others still exist, worthy members of society. With these words, the physician rose and took his leave, and almost immediately after he had quitted the library, the Earl of Ellingham entered, closing the door behind him with the caution of one who has some important or mysterious communication to make. "'Arthur, you have evil tidings for me?' exclaimed Mr. Hatfield, advancing towards his noble half-brother. "'Nay, they can scarcely be called evil, Thomas,' was the reply. "'And yet, twould perhaps have been better—' "'Speak, keep me not in suspense,' interrupted the other. "'Charles, your son.' "'Ah, he has discovered his parentage,' cried Hatfield. "'Yes, I am sure that this is the circumstance which you came to communicate.' And he walked twice up and down the room in an agitated manner. Then, suddenly turning towards his brother, he said, "'How did this occur, Arthur?' The Earl related the incident just as it had taken place, not forgetting the short but impressive dialogue which he had with his own daughter, Lady Frances, respecting the sudden and accidental revelation of the secret of Charles Hatfield's birth. "'After all, I am not sorry that this has so happened,' observed the nobleman's half-brother. "'Sooner or later the truth must have been confided to my son, my dear son. And since the secret may still be preserved in respect to the world,' and to those whom we would not wish to become acquainted with it. Sir John Lascelles himself does not even suspect it, interrupted Arthur. It is known but to our immediate family, and Georgiana's honor is as safe as ever it was. The breath of scandal cannot reach it. Thanks, my dear brother, a thousand thanks for this assurance, exclaimed Mr. Hatfield. And now let my son come hither to embrace me as his father. But, Arthur, he added, sinking his voice to a low and solemn tune. Let him not inquire into the motives which induced his parents to envelop his birth in mystery, and join him to forbear from any attempt to gratify his curiosity in that respect. I hope, indeed I believe that you have no painful ordeal of such a nature to apprehend, replied the Earl of Ellingham, and having thus spoken, he quitted the library. Two minutes elapsed during which Mr. Hatfield once more paced the apartment in an agitated manner. For, knowing the fine spirit of his son, he trembled, lest it should be checked or even broken by the mortifying suspicion that he was illegitimate. 
A falsehood is abhorrent to me, he thought within himself, and yet, if he should question me respecting his birth, I dare not avow the truth. I must not confess to my own son that his being resulted from an atrocious outrage perpetrated by myself, nor must I permit him to suspect the honor of his mother. Silence on my part, I now perceive, would engender such suspicion in respect to her, and she must not lose one particle of the dignity of virtue in the eyes of her own offspring. Alas, painful position! And oh, with what foolish and short-sighted haste did I ere now affirm that I was not sorry for the discovery which he had made. At this moment the door opened, and Charles sprang forward into his father's arms, which were extended to receive him. For some minutes they remained silent, each too profoundly the prey to ineffable emotions to give utterance to a syllable. I am proud. I am rejoiced to be able to call you by the sacred name of Father, at length exclaimed Charles, speaking with the abrupt loosening of the tongue which was caused by a sudden impulse. But are you, are you well pleased that accident should have thus revealed to me? Charles, my dear boy, interrupted Mr. Hatfield, summoning all his firmness to his aid. You must be aware that weighty reasons, the weightiest reasons, could alone have induced your mother and myself to practice a deception towards you in the world, in respect to the degree of relationship in which you really stood with regard to us. Is it sufficient for you to know at last that you are our son? Or do you demand of me an explanation wherefore you must still pass as our nephew? Oh, then Lord Ellingham spoke truly as he brought me hither just now, cried Charles, in a tone of vexation. Then, in another moment brightening up, he added feelingly, but by what right do I dare to question the conduct of parents who have ever treated me so kindly? No, my dear father, I seek not any explanation at your hands. I am content to obey your wishes in all things. Generous youth, exclaimed Mr. Hatfield, though you must pass as my nephew, Charles, yet in all respects shall you continue to be treated as my son. You are doubtless aware that I am rich, very rich, and all that your mother and myself possess is bequeathed to you. One word, father, only one word, cried Charles. I have an ardent longing to ask a single question, and yet I dare not, no, I cannot tutor my lips to frame the words. Speak, said Mr. Hatfield emphatically. I can almost divine the question you hesitate to put to me. Ah, my dear father, I would rather know the truth at once than remain in suspense a prey to a thousand wild conjectures. The truth regarding one point, and only one, repeated the young man, in an earnest and imploring tone. And imagine not, he continued, speaking with increased warmth and rapidity, that I should ever look less lovingly or less respectfully upon my dear mother if— Set that suspicion at rest, my son, interrupted Mr. Hatfield, in a solemn manner. Your mother has ever been an angel of innocence and purity. As God is my judge, she has never been guilty of weakness or frailty. No, never. Never, he added emphatically. And therefore no stigma is upon my birth? asked Charles, his heart palpitating, or rather fluttering violently as he awaited the response. None, replied his father, with an effort which was, however, unnoticed by the young man in the excitement of his own feelings. God be thanked, exclaimed he, wringing Mr. Hatfield's hand in gratitude for this assurance. And now I seek to learn no more. End of section 12, 
Recording by Brian Keenan.